listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. January 14, 1984. It was a typical night at the Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, with medical staff moving from room to room, caring for their patients. In the neurosurgery wing, 19-year-old Cynthia Ann McGee was recovering nicely from an automobile accident, but she had spiked a fever. Dr. Michael Swango, a surgical intern, was called to take a blood culture from the young woman. He slipped into her room at 11.30 p.m. At midnight, the call of code blue echoed over the hospital's loudspeakers and doctors rushed to Cynthia's room. She was unresponsive, her skin a pale, dusty blue. Of all the personnel on that floor responding to the code blue, one was noticeably missing, the floor's surgical intern. Tonight's mystery isn't about identifying a killer. We know his name. It's Joseph Michael Swango, although many have come to call him the doctor of death. And tonight, I'm happy to say he is safely behind bars and has been for the last 20 years. And his weapon is not the mystery. He poisoned patients, colleagues, friends, and acquaintances alike. Nobody was safe around him, not his landlady, the guy he went to a ball game with, his fiance. The only mystery, and one that will never be solved, is how many victims to attribute to this serial killer. He was convicted of four deaths, including one in Ohio, but the truth is authorities wonder if he might actually be responsible for at least 60 deaths, including up to seven in Columbus. So let's go back to the beginning. Swango's medical career and his reign of terror began at the same time. Joseph Michael Swango, he went by his middle name, Michael, was born in 1954 in Tacoma, Washington, but spent his childhood in Quincy, Illinois. He was the middle child of John Swango, a career U.S. Army officer who served in the Vietnam War, and Muriel Swango, his mother. His parents divorced, and he grew up not seeing much of his father, but he worked hard at school, attending Quincy Catholic Boys High School. He was a Presbyterian in a school full of Catholics. He rose to the top. He graduated in 1972 as the class valedictorian. Swango did a stint in the Marines and was honorably discharged in 1976, then he graduated from Quincy University, summa cum laude, before attending medical school at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. In hindsight, his killing spree might have begun right there. He worked as an ambulance attendant, where he got a reputation for having an inordinate number of patients assigned to him end up with life-threatening emergencies, five of whom died. Even in 1982, classmates were calling him 00 Swango, a twist on 007, joking that he had a license to kill. 
Swango ran into other kinds of trouble at school and almost got expelled for faking some required activities. And when Swango applied for a surgical internship at Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983, the dean of his school even gave him a very poor recommendation. It didn't matter. The OSU Medical Center gave him the internship anyway, as well as an invitation to stay for a residency in neurosurgery. As I said, Swango may have already been a serial killer at this point, and he wasn't very good at hiding his behavior. In Ohio, nurses noticed that apparently healthy patients began dying mysteriously always after encounters with Swango. After a few months, in January of 1984, he was put on probation for poor performance. It didn't slow him down. He was still allowed to treat patients. And while he was on probation, a 69-year-old woman named Rena Cooper suffered a mysterious seizure just after Swango checked on her as she was recovering from surgery. Rena recovered from the seizure and told people Dr. Swango had put something into her IV right before the attack. A search turned up a used hypodermic needle in a nearby room where witnesses saw Swango. One nurse who saw him said he even had a funny grin on his face as he left the room where the needle was found. Three different doctors confronted Swango, but he denied even being in Rena Cooper's room, even though Rena's roommate had identified him. There was also an incident in which Swango apparently tried to do his colleagues harm. He brought in chicken to share, saying it was extra spicy, probably to hide any odd flavoring they might taste. Several co-workers who ate it became dizzy, and started vomiting. Even after all that, Swango was given the benefit of the doubt. OSU did pull its residency offer after his internship was complete, but he was allowed to leave the hospital with no investigation and no charges. Many years later, OSU officials will admit they feared being sued by Swango since they couldn't prove he was responsible for up to seven deaths that happened under his care. And so, sadly, they passed him on. Swango left the hospital in June of 1984 and returned to Quincy, Illinois, where he landed a job as a paramedic with the Adams County Ambulance Corps. Almost immediately, people around him started getting sick. He brought donuts for his entire crew, 45 minutes after eating the treats, they all became violently ill. The very next night, Swango and co-worker Brent Unmissig went to a football game. The two men had a disturbing conversation in which Swango revealed that his ideal call as a paramedic would be to attend a scene where a busload of children had hit a tanker truck and exploded. He described this fantasy of seeing charred bodies everywhere. Oh, he also bought Brent Unmissick a soda at that game, and it made Brent violently ill. Swango's co-workers in Quincy, Illinois, may not have known about the cloud of suspicion he left behind in Ohio, 
but they had one of their own. One night, they faked a call to send Swango out of the station, then opened his locker. In his gym bag, they found two bottles of ant poison, one filled, one empty. They called police. Armed with a search warrant, police found more poison at his apartment, along with books on it, recipes for it, even several syringes, including one filled with ant poison. This all led to an arrest, a conviction on six counts of aggravated battery, and a sentence of up to five years in prison for Swango. During all of this, of course, things back in Columbus were just exploding. There were scathing reviews of how OSU handled Swango when he was there. And Franklin County prosecutors were desperately trying to find evidence to bring charges of murder against him. But nobody could find enough physical evidence to prove it. Meanwhile, in prison, Swango was on his best behavior, and he was granted early release after just two years. And guess what? Swango was still able to find work in the medical field, this time with a medical vocational school in Newport News, Virginia, where he convinced his new employers he had been the victim of a terrible injustice. Three colleagues there fell ill before Swango was ushered out, and he made his way to his next playground, a quick stint at a South Dakota hospital, and then on to New York and the Northport Veterans Affairs Medical Center on Long Island. Along the way, he had changed his name to Daniel Adams and then Michael Kirk. Unbelievably, when he landed at that Long Island VA hospital as Dr. Michael Kirk, they didn't even do a background check that would have revealed his forged documents. And get this, the day after he was hired in 1993, the very day after his first patient, Dominic Buffalino, fell into a coma and died. I'm giving you a thumbnail version of these events here. There's so much more. At one point, Swango met a pretty nurse named Kristen Kinney, and they got engaged. But then Swango's past was outed by a cable television program called Justice Files. Even though she stayed with him, she began to suspect he might have been the cause of migraine headaches she had been having during their entire relationship. On July 15, 1993, she was found in a Virginia park, dead of a gunshot wound. She left behind a suicide note. Her mother said she killed herself from grief on learning that her fiancé had been poisoning her. Her mother had a clip of Kristen's hair tested. It revealed arsenic. Anyway, let's move ahead to September 29, 1993, and Swango, as Dr. Michael Kirk, is working at that Long Island VA hospital when he was asked to attend Baron Harris, a 60-year-old Long Island cabinet maker who had a fever of 140 degrees and a slight case of pneumonia. Barron's wife, Elsie, said at first Swango acted professional, but then he gave her husband a sedative, which overnight sent him into a coma. 
Elsie asked him about that sedative, and Dr. Swango smirked at her and said, gee, he hoped it wasn't anything he did. The case made the news, and as things were getting hot for the doctor of death, he prepared to run. But first, he hauntingly told Elsie that her husband would never come out of that coma. And he was right. Baron Harris died a month later. Swango fled, but not for all those mysterious deaths. He had never been charged in connection with any of them. All authorities had on him was making false statements on that job application to the government VA hospital. Nobody knew where Swango was, but the month he left that VA hospital in New York, he turned up in Zimbabwe, a country in Southern Africa, landing a job in a rural hospital. Who knows how much death and destruction he caused there. The medical director did come to have suspicions and suspended Swango. But because autopsies had never been done on patients who had died in his care, there was no evidence. And Swango hired an attorney to threaten the hospital out of attempting to smear his name. This animal just couldn't contain himself. He poisoned everyone around him. Even the widow where he rented a room became sick and at the suggestion of a local surgeon had a sample of her hair sent in for analysis. It revealed arsenic and Swango was suspected and the report found its way to Interpol and then the FBI. The heat was on and Swango fled again. He crossed the border to Zambia and then Namibia, finding temporary medical work. The beginning of the end came in 1997 when Swango used a fake resume and applied for a job at a hospital in Saudi Arabia. The U.S. was keeping an eye on him abroad, hoping he would slip up. And in what I can only assume was evidence of his absolute cockiness, he flew back to the United States to renew his work visa so he could take that job in the Middle East. Authorities were waiting. During a layover at Chicago's O'Hare Airport on his way back out of the country, they nabbed him. Authorities quickly charged him with lying on a federal application, and he got three and a half years in prison. That gave authorities three and a half years to find a way to prove that Swango was, beyond a reasonable doubt, guilty of the deaths of people who had been dead and buried for years. As part of their investigation, prosecutors ordered the exhumation of three patients and found poison in all of them. They found evidence that he had paralyzed Baron Harris with an injection of what was supposed to be a sedative. They found evidence that he had lied about the death of Cynthia Ann McGee back during that internship at OSU. Swango had claimed she suffered heart failure the day he entered her room to attend her high fever, but in truth, her heart had been stopped by an injection of potassium. Less than a week before Swango was due to be released from prison for lying his way into that VA hospital, they finally had enough, and Swango was charged with the murders of Cynthia Ann McGee, 
as well as those Long Island VA patients, Thomas Samarco, George Ciano, Aldo Serini, and Baron Harris. At the same time, authorities in Zimbabwe charged him with poisoning seven patients, five of whom died. U.S. authorities threatened to send Swango to face those Zimbabwe charges first, and the idea of extradition scared him, enough so that he agreed to plead guilty to four deaths. He went to New York and entered his plea in the case of the three VA hospital patients. Then he was taken to the Franklin County Courthouse in Columbus, Ohio, where he pled guilty to the 1984 murder of Cynthia Ann McGee. During his court appearances, prosecutors read lurid passages from Swango's diaries, describing the joy he felt during his crimes. Swango sat quietly during the court hearing, his strawberry blonde hair styled in a short crew cut. He appeared almost uninterested in the process, only speaking when it was his time to stand up and admit to having killed Cynthia. Swango is now at the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado, according to one source, in 23-hour solitary confinement. He's 65 years old now. From an official standpoint, the book on one of the most disturbing stories in modern medicine is closed. But authorities agree there are a lot of bodies out there that never got exhumed, including several in Ohio. Circumstantial evidence ties Swango to the deaths of at least 35 more people. And frankly, they think his list of victims might be double that during a 16-year career that stretched from his days as a medical student in 1981 until he was apprehended at that Chicago airport in 1997. In other words, a man serving time for just four murders may very well be one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. There are other families that don't feel closure, since there is no official record crediting Swango with the murder of their loved one. The relatives of Dominic Buffalino, that's the Long Island VA patient who died the day after Swango was hired, said it was good that the killer couldn't hurt anyone else, but they were very dissatisfied that Dominic's cause of death would never be corrected. The folks in Zimbabwe, of course, got nothing. The country dropped its effort to extradite Swango since he had three life sentences in the United States. But nurses there say they will never forget the memory of Swango and forever be haunted by the thought of him strolling the hospital halls, his pockets filled with syringes of death. Even those who survived their close encounters with Swango suffered terribly. One African peasant farmer told the story of how Swango walked into his room, gave him an unexpected injection, waved goodbye, and walked out. His whole body went numb to the point that he couldn't shout for help. He lived through the ordeal, but his leg had to be amputated, leaving him unable to do the farm chores he once did. His wife had to take over at home, working the farm, thatching their house, 
He was a shadow of the man he had once been, receiving no compensation and never getting his day in court. And in Ohio, I found a very brief reference to a 22-year-old woman named Anna Mae Popka, who died under Swango's care at the OSU hospital. The article said Anna Mae's mom sued Swango in a civil case. I couldn't find out how that case ended. But we do know that that was yet another murder for which Swango was never held criminally responsible. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I'd never even heard of this before. I can't believe that. You are like the library of serial killers. Right. It's just amazing that he he just couldn't help himself. He, he couldn't. I mean, I, I, clearly there was some mental wiring that stopped him from stopping himself. And what's so sad is that, I mean, he was in college and they suspected this was going on. And it's like, goodbye for the next 16 years, continue killing people because we are never gonna figure out how to stop you. Right, just just unbelievable. All right, well, that's it for our midweek 10 minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.